Welcome to Storytelling with me, your host, Bessie B. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Storytelling with me, your host, Bessie B. It is my absolute pleasure, as always, to welcome onto the show our latest guest, Kim Griffin. They have sent in two pieces, which you'll be hearing shortly. The first is called Irreversible, and the second, Aqueduct. Please enjoy both. And stick around for the interview. It's very revealing. Enjoy. Kim Griffin is a non-binary and lesbian-identified writer who lives and works in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They were born and raised in the Boston area and moved to Santa Fe to attend College of Santa Fe, where they received a BA in politics. They later completed a MA in American Studies at the University of New Mexico. Kim is a non-native, a white person of Irish heritage and aims to create work in revolutionary community to disrupt the dominance of racism and settler colonialism. They hope to smash patriarchy and contribute to new narratives of gender, sex and love. Kim's first self-published novel, Shadow Flare, is a queer young science fiction story and you can find this and other works at kimgrithen.net spelt K-I-M-G-R-Y-P-H-O-N dot net. Irreversible. It's irreversible. The echo of their handler's warning sounded through Alex's mind. In a satchel at their waist, the handler hid an injection to be administered to everybody upon arrival to the border. Fluidity would become fixed. Was the choice worth the trade? Alex could hardly say either way, so instead of dwelling on already made decisions, they squeezed Lyric's hand and planted a kiss on the small of their lover's neck. Lyric sighed at the sensation, enjoying one last affectionate gesture before they rose. Lyric said, Alex, sweet lady of mine, last night you will be my gentleman today. Alex winked, both always. They dressed and gathered their belongings to pack up like they were on a recreational camping trip. But this was no vacation. Every day, with the handler leading them, their party steadily approached the border. If a better life laid ahead, no one could truly say. It's irreversible. Want to practice? Alex mused. Call me your husband, him, he. Less slip-ups, less chance of getting caught after crossing over. You're the husband, Lyric joked. Is that what we've decided now? Alex laughed. Either or, I'm flexible. For them over there, it's just about procreation. For them, Lyric repeated. But for us, it's about avoiding detection. We stick to the script. Agreed, Alex affirmed. They slightly lamented. As the distance to their destination dwindled, they approached a place where the lines between male and female were fixed. Alex didn't want to lose the fluidity they experienced with Lyric, the languid lovemaking moments of climax when they took turns enveloping one another in radical openness. They liked depending on one another as both provider and pillar, or as nurturer and nest, but their homeland offered no opportunity, no security. They had to try something else together. It's irreversible.
written August 2017 en route between New York and Boston. The Aqueduct Marcus stood, scrutinising. He held a glossy 5 by 7 photo in his right hand. It was smudged from years of haphazard handling, but its image endured. Although the expressions of the subjects in the photos were obscured, the environs that the picture presented matched perfectly to the place in which Marcus stood, plus or minus a few decades of development and redevelopment. Despite the uncanny association, he could not conjure the figures from out of the photo to magically manifest. He didn't want to. He stood still, utterly alone atop a mass old aqueduct in upstate New York. Not that far upstate. The people encapsulated into the memory of the photo actually only drove about an hour to arrive to this place from Manhattan. Marcus remembered, somewhat. He was there, after all. Here now, the sound of rushing water blared. He wouldn't be able to hear a person calling his name even five or ten yards away. The sounds of bird songs were muted, enveloped into the blare of the channeled current. Silently he wondered what kind of energy the structure harnessed, but he didn't really know a damn thing about the architecture upon which he stood. He didn't know then either. With a sigh, Marcus grew restless. He turned his attention away from the picture, flapping it around with a shake of his wrist. As the old photo flopped about, he cast his gaze from side to side, seeing a lengthening of stonework in both directions. The aqueduct reached some scores of yards above the river, siphoned off on one side, while extending beyond the surface of the lake on its other side. At half the height, not exactly the top of the world, he felt high nonetheless. The spray of water flowing through stone added to a sense of awe at both nature's marvellous power and the human ingenuity required to conceive and construct this enormity. In the lake beyond, the water looked apparently serene, but as Marcus approached the edge of the long brick platform, he noticed scummy mass accumulated on its surface. Because of the water's relative clarity, he could see that the strands of algae growth extend beyond the surface, as if they composed an organic rope to hidden places underwater. Quietly, Marcus mused at the idea of the people from his family photo returning from the lake's bottom, surfacing as ghostly sea creatures to give him a visit. That wouldn't happen. His kin didn't haunt this place, although surely the woods were site for dispossession and dislocation. Marcus' ancestors arrived to this continent after the initial wave of colonial violence, in time to subsequently reap the benefits, as racial propriety assured each generation a share. He was white after all. Nearby, surviving tribes lived their days, removed from Westchester's eye enough to allow for the modern narrative of the disappearance, Native American to reside to the subconscious of most colonial residents. In so doing, this narrative served to justify the ongoing marginalization of indigenous peoples. Despite the experiences of historic violence, disease, and continuous dehumanization, Algonquin peoples endured. The ghosts of their ancestors didn't appear to be haunting Marcus either, as his eyes scanned the water surface tension. The ghost of his own family also remained dormant, as they stood frozen on the old image taken at this same location. The figures captured in the frame were, too, 
alive and kicking. Suddenly, Marcus quit looking across the lake and arched his neck to crane around toward another aspect of the aqueduct's function. Water gushed, coursing through the stonework and into a river he didn't know the name of. The watershed fed rampant life, manicured into a recreational facility for weekenders' pleasure. Amazed, he witnessed the flowing of water chopping and channeled as the stagnation of the lake behind him availed stillness enough to elicit the build-up of underwater ropes to unseen worlds, and the river gushed on. A shining black car pulled into the parking lot alongside the river's edge. Marcus observed a straight, white, middle-aged couple hop out with their golden, medium-sized dog. He half-watched them wander into the woods from the corner of his eye. A few other cars parked in the lot while the owners anonymously hiked in the forest. In August, the lush density of green life peaked, offering a vast canopy. Marcus's beat-up white Volvo waited among them, urging him to continue on, but he didn't allow himself to walk away from the moment so easily. He searched for something of past to be revealed in this place, so he again aligned his stance with the taker of the old photo, pinching the slim picture between thumb and index finger to give it one last squint. His father stood tallest among them, looking casual in khaki shorts, a white t-shirt, and a black Yankees baseball cap that shielded his expression from the viewer's eyes. A row of white teeth bared into a smile as he draped his right arm around his daughter, Marcus's sister. To the photographer, she appeared to be the left of the father, but of course she was actually on his right in that moment long past. Such details didn't really matter, but Marcus briefly entertained the notion as he attempted to recreate the experience in his mind's eye. His sister was a girly girl, in the sense that she despised nature's effects on the state of her hair. Then, at the age of 14 and firmly footed in the 1980s, she relied on the teasing results of ample hairspray to accentuate her application of makeup, which Marcus recalled her devoting countless bathroom hours towards. Nor did the photo show the tiny mosquitoes that buzzed by her face that day, barraging her into squeals of displeasure at her surroundings. But Marcus's sister, to their father's right, really stood in the centre of the family row. At the far end, on the left, stood a younger child dressed more similarly to their father, even though the kid had more in common physically with his sister. Three years younger, and at least three inches shorter, the kid's long red hair hid under a baseball cap, this one blue. An oversized t-shirt buried the kid's small frame and skinny legs stuck out from cut-off shorts. The kid's pearly teeth shone, taking up most of the young Marcus's face. Present tense, Marcus smirked. He did always appreciate spending time in nature. The only member of the immediate family not featured in the photo was Marcus's mother which was not surprising, and she took it. She also had it developed and wrote an inscription on the back. Marcus already had read his mother's scrawl cataloguing this event many times, but he decided to flip the picture to check it once more. Jack, Lindsay, Alicia, 1988. Marcus wondered, as usual, why she didn't write where the photo took place. He'd driven to a couple different falls in Westchester County before finding this location in his first return since 30 years in the past. Not that he particularly minded. 
Each location he visited hosted incredible beauty, and each detour allowed him to avoid arriving to the city. One week ago, Marcus had been driving his car through dusty, wide open plains on a single lane highway. Mountains towered in the horizon, visible despite the vast distance, because only scrub brushes populated the space in between. Probably small and medium-sized mammals, along with diverse population of reptiles and insects, lurked amidst the dusty terrain. But Marcus could see no such creatures. From out the windshield, he spied a few birds soaring across the sky, above the land, and snaking around that urged him forward. With all the windows rolled down, a blast of cool dust air jostled the vehicle's interior, homogenized to match more with the natural world surrounding him. He drove in his car, loaded with various provisions, boxes of canned soup and vegetables, pastas, trail mix, and even packets of diapers. He barely heard his cell phone ring and was surprised that he could even receive calls in such barren terrain. Hello, he answered as he attempted to simultaneously roll up the windows. Marcus, are you there? Yeah, Lindsay, I'm here. Hang on just a moment. He sealed the windows so that he might hear each other. What's up? Marcus, where are you? Sounded like a hurricane. Just driving with the windows down, Linz. So where are you? On the road. Just about to cross into North Dakota, he answered. What the hell are you doing all the way out there? She asked with a hint of incredulity. Delivering supplies to Standing Rock, he responded. The Sioux here are mounting a resistance to the pipeline under construction. What has that got to do with you? She pressed. Clean water. Respecting tribal sovereignty. Human dignity over corporate profit. Look, I get that it matters. I just don't want you to get arrested for anything. I don't want to see you get in trouble, Marcus. She loudly sighed and then briefly paused. Anyway, I'm calling because you need to come home. It's mom. He made it to the camp, but after dropping off supplies, he didn't make it to New York in time to say goodbye. When he learned of his mother's passing, he became obsessed with the photo. It was one of the only artifacts he retained from those old days. His father had dropped all contact with Marcus when he began his transition away from being Alicia. Lindsay and his mother kept a tenuous kind of connection over the years, occasionally visiting or making phone calls, but Marcus left New York for the past couple decades, never returning until now, after his sister called with the bad news. He finally put the photo back into his pocket, convinced it offered no answers to his grief and the questioning. Now the only ghost in the picture didn't even appear in the image itself. Instead, she lingered as the eye of the gaze, the holder of the pen. As Marcus looked once more along the roping strands of algae deepening below the surface of the lake, he listened to the roar of moving water, channeled behind him. He'd never again be coerced into the role of that she he'd been raised to become. To Marcus, that kid lived only in the picture, standing still in the past. It was time for him to move on, to descend that massive hulk of architecture upon which the ghost of memory stood. He strode atop the aqueduct and walked down stone stairs towards a car that he would drive back to the city, his heart heavy as he followed beside the flowing river. Impulsively, he pulled the photo from out of his pocket and without giving it another glance, he tossed it into the current, silently apologising to the planet for this act of littering. He simultaneously bade goodbye to memories from a time that hardly felt real. Even as the picture disappeared into the river, it continued to exist in a slow but palpable going away from the aqueduct. Without further ado, 
Marcus got into his old car and did the same. So I have Kim Griffin on the line. Thank you so much for joining us on um, Storytelling with Bissy B. How are you? I'm great. And thank you so much for including me. I just respect you so much professionally, politically and personally. And I'm just so happy to share a conversation with you, even if it's remote. I would prefer face to face, of course. Um, Of course. But, you know, I'm happy to talk to you anytime for pleasure or with a purpose. Oh, you know, you're just such a wonderful, wonderful writer. And I thought to myself, I can't believe I haven't asked you to come on the show sooner. So thank you so much for sharing your two pieces, both Aqueduct, which, oh, my gosh, we're going to get onto that one. And the second piece. Uh, it's called Irreversible. That's it. Irreversible. So your second short, very short piece. But we'll get to that. Irreversible. One of the first questions I like to ask our guests is mm. who or what influences you as a writer? Hmm. Well, right now I have been meditating on strong female writers and also strong queer writers who have inspired me and challenged me to move forward. And um, right now just in light of where we are in time and space, I would like to honor most uh, Toni Morrison because she just wrote so many dynamic black characters and voiced the black experienced women who maybe had never read their stories written from a voice within that experience. And I think that she really took that as a challenge to all writers to to write the book that you wanted to read as a kid. And, and what she brought to the canon was just so immense and so powerful. And I just am so um, grateful that she graced us on this planet. And I just want to honor her right now um, in her passing. So, Thank you, Kim, for bringing that up. Yes, Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, remains my number one favorite all-time book. And I, you know, I'm an avid reader. I've read a lot of books. But that one in particular, because like you've mentioned, she really did bring stories forward that weren't normally told or didn't have a place to be told. And she wrote about them very loudly, very proudly, and very boldly. Do you, um, just reading your work, and we'll get more into it in a little while, would you consider yourself a social activist with your writing? I think that I am aware that all communication is political and there's, there's power dynamics at work in the way how we navigate the world embodied and to reflect that in the experience of writing is crucial to me. And so I, I make an effort to do that and hopefully get better at it with time consistently. So. Um, I think it's part of the craft and acknowledging that as part of the craft is is more empowering as a writer to me than anything else. Let's talk about Aqueduct. I read that and then I had to read it again. There's a lot to take in. Your amazing talent to draw me, the reader, in a very short amount of time into your world. Now, as a writer, do you have the images already planted in your head and you're just trying to get them out on paper? How does your process work in this? Well, I love words. So I do think 
very hard on which words I choose. Um, and I also, I hear the flow of the words together. And I also visually, I look at them on the page and I, and I like to see the way the words fit together. So to me, I guess that's where the craft comes in. And that is a, that's a pleasurable experience for me. Um, and it also gets back to editing, of course, because then you'll look back at what you've written and trying to determine when it gets too dense because the, the artistic process of putting the words together got in the way of what you were trying to communicate. And then that is the moment of breaking it back down into something that feels more simple. Um, sometimes I'm more interested in my writing sounding like a person actually talks. And sometimes I'm more interested in prose almost as like a form of poetry. So I, I feel like I sort of like ebb and flow between those two things as a writer. Well, I think Aqueduct is definitely a work of poetry. Um, each sort of block is an amazing picture. You paint, you paint these really beautiful pictures all by itself. I did have a question mm. about Marcus, and, and I was curious why this particular photo meant so much to him. And I, I mean, I know why, but why did he need to seek it out, this place? Why did he need to go back there? Well, I think that part of why he stopped there was almost um, to give himself a breath before he walked into this present moment, because the present moment of his family dynamics are a greater hostility, and it's something that he had to move away from in order to realize his fullest potential as himself in his transition. And also knowing that he needed to return because he wanted to grieve the loss of his mother with his family. And so mm, I think right. I think there's that sort of moment where you're about to step in to it, but you just want to take that breath before. And I think that also that sense of remembering and then thus returning to the falls and this sort of thing, like that meant a lot to him. So that way he could just sort of center before he stepped into this next moment that was so important to him to do with grace, but also with like his true integrity of himself. Thank you. That was beautifully said. Very clear too. You did a really good job as a writer of holding off the reveal. I'm intrigued because I, I really didn't make a, uh, a click until you literally wrote on page, one of the last two pages, it says, Marcus, when he began his transition away from being Alyssa, did you mean to hold us back, hold it back that long? And why, if that's the case? I think I chose to do that as a writer because Marcus is a trans man. And by that, I mean, Marcus is a man. And so if I had introduced initially what it means for him to be a trans man, I think that a lot of readers would then immediately try to put him into a box as being something different from just a man. And so I wanted the readers to really understand that this is a male character, this is a, this is a man. And then as, as the story unfolds, 
you understand the history of what that means for him in his journey. And so I wanted to make sure that it's so normalized his experience as a trans man as the experience of being a man. And so I, I really wanted the reader to feel that this is this is a man and then they can have the understanding of what a trans man's experience could be different than a cisgendered man's experience would be. Thank you for that. I have these great questions for you. Well, I think they're great. <laughs> Did you, when placing it at this aqueduct, because it felt heavy, mm. because you've got this heavy architectural pieces, which you mentioned mm -hmm. a few times throughout the piece. So it gave me a sense of heaviness, which metaphorically could be something that he'd been carrying in his life, this heavy weight until the transition. Was this purposeful? Did you realize that's what you were doing? You know, in terms of place and choosing to write about that place, it is a very powerful and heavy place. And I visited it for the first time just prior to writing the story. And I didn't know exactly where the story would go. I just had such a visceral experience when I was walking along that architecture and then feeling the flow of the water and being out in it. And I, and I wanted first to capture that visceral experience. And then actually the story fell into place from there. So I didn't, I didn't know the characters I wanted to write before I wrote about the place. I knew I wanted to write about that place. So I do feel that it leaves this very strong and powerful impression in that way. And so the characters that then came to me and the story that was then told, I think reflected that sensation as a result. Well, I think you did a marvelous job because right at the end, when he throws away the picture, I, it felt like the architecture was being lifted off of his shoulders mm. and that he was able to walk away with a lightness in his step, which was beautiful. Ah, oh, thank you. You're very welcome. What is the connection between him and his mother? Why was his mother so important and honoring her? I think that um, perhaps of the of his parents, his mother was the one who had a stronger understanding of his sense of self. And so even though he needed to move away from his family in order to transition in a way that felt safe and healthy for him. I think that the connection with his mother, although it doesn't go too deeply in the story, I think that perhaps she had that stronger sense of empathy for her son and thus was able to support him more. Um, and so I think that he had that greater affection as a result. You explained to us earlier that you decided to write this um, after visiting this aqueduct and you went along with the story. How do you feel about the results? What, I mean, I, clearly you like it because it's finished and you're showing it to people, but what is it that you particularly like about this story? Well, I think that it works with a few elements that I'm, I'm trying to, um, to work with as a writer. Like, for example... I know I want to write queer characters. This is very important to me as a, okay. as a non-binary writer. 
Um, I, I, want to I want to write about queer experience um, in my stories. And I also wanted to write about Marcus's experience as trans separated from sexuality, because I think that gender and sexuality are two different things that are very enmeshed, but to be able to sort of pull them apart and look at them as different aspects of a person's experience is very valuable and writing is a really good outlet to do that. Um, the other thing about that story is I think that it was definitely influenced and inspired by the work of Leslie Feinberg, um, who passed away in 2014, by the way, and I also uh, look to honor as a writer who came before me because uh, Feinberg wrote Stone Butch Blues, and that book is incredibly influential to queer people. And mm -hmm. also <laughs> Feinberg was an activist. And I think that mm -hmm. in Stone Butch Blues and also in the work Transgender Warriors, one thing that Feinberg really works to do is draw the connections between what it means to be an activist and also just an embodied person in the world, to be a writer, to hold multiple identities. And um, and Feinberg is, is very well known for um, labor struggles and support of indigenous struggles. And I think that Stone Butch Blues has gotten a little bit of a critique because it didn't fully connect uh, like the labor struggles of the protagonist to the struggles of the indigenous people in the New York area that the protagonist was living in and amongst. And so I wanted to sort of honor Feinberg's work, but also find a way to refine it by sort of like acknowledging what it means to be a person in place. And so I think that Marcus is an example of a character that's trying to do that. And also is an example of a character that is in that that lineage of like um, a strong uh, gender non-conforming and sort of like moving towards a more revolutionary understanding of gender. Um, and then also because it's so important to me okay. um, that his character sort of existed with the knowledge of what it meant to be a settler on native land and what that means to problematize the concept of coming home. Because yes, he was quote, coming home, but whose home is it? And I think that that's something that is very important to um, acknowledge as a settler, as, as myself living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, and actually this might be a really good moment for me as a writer to also, um, you know, acknowledge and honor the Pueblo peoples in New Mexico because their relationship to this place proceeds and endures beyond my own embodiment as a person in place. And it makes me acknowledge myself as displaced. And I think that, so this story of Marcus is, yes, he is quote, coming home, but let's problematize that notion of coming home because I think that that is, a very simple trope that needs to be unpacked, particularly as a person in place, because I think that Marcus is displaced on multiple levels as a settler 
and also looking back to his history and realizing that he was displaced in his own body because he was misgendered as a child and then coming into what this sense of place can be in his body. And so how is or isn't that a form of coming home? Mm. Um, so that's something yes. that definitely um, runs through the, that particular piece. Thank you so much for sharing that and unpacking all that. It was brilliant. Let's quickly talk about irreversible, not quickly, but let's talk about, I want to touch on this before we run out of time. Well, it's a quick, it's a quick story anyway, so. Oh, but it's not, <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's a quick story, but oh my God, you have come packed a lot in two pages. This is, this is what good writing is, folks. When you can tell a story from beginning to end with just two pages, that's it. I loved this piece. I thought, oh, this is short. I'll read this quickly. And then I went, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So just tell me about it. Just just go for it. All right. Um, so Irreversible is flash fiction. And I submitted it to a queer sci-fi uh, flash fiction contest with the theme of migration. And the only rule was 300 words or less. So that was, that was, uh, what, uh, that was my, my confines. Um, okay. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to flip the notion of the migration story at like, I think that especially right now in the United States, one thing about, um, the migration story is the idea that the United States is supposed to be this, this, uh, great civilized place that, that other people want to get into it and, and, and that our current administration is actively dehumanizing people to quote, keep them out. And I think that that is completely inaccurate description of the United States of America. And I think that it, it doesn't get to the piece of what compels people to move. And it also doesn't get to the point of understanding migration as a, as a dynamic experience of movement. And so it's mm. not a one way direction ever. Um, no, it's never has been. Never has been. And I think that, that, that there's some, there's some active story and trope right now that's functioning very strongly in our politics politics and our governance and also in in impacting directly upon people's lives that it is this inaccurate story and so I wanted to look at um, this idea of crossing over also um, using gender and sexuality as a dynamic interplay um, and and for me, using that as as understanding some of the trade-offs that are ever present in moving from one space to another. And so how do these mm. characters have to choose a certain degree of code switching? What is and isn't irreversible about that? And then also, mm. um, I wanted to write pan characters that are gender morphic. So um, their their ability to change gender is is part of their is part of their gendered experience, but then their sexuality is also part of a gendered experience. And so I they're both pan characters. They're both non-binary and gender fluid. And so how does their love sort of defy any 
polar notions of what masculine and feminine should and do mean to each other in sexuality, you know? Yes, absolutely. That's why I loved it. There was so much going on. Bravo. Yeah, it was definitely a little bit of a gamble to try and write something so fast and and still get the story that I wanted to tell out and leave it with enough open-endedness that hopefully people can take away from it what is valuable to them or what was insightful to them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really love that idea. So what was the outcome of the competition? Oh, um, I got an honorable mention in the book Migration. Hey, hey. Um, the There's a queer sci-fi community and website, and they have uh, published the Migration book with... What's the website name? Uh, it is QueerSciFi.com. Right, QueerSciFi.com. Mm-hmm. And um, they do they do this uh, this contest uh, every year with a different um, uh, a different theme. Okay. And the book is available as an ebook and also in hard copy form, and it's over two hundred pages long. There's an incredible amount of writers in it, and for me, the outcome that I'm most excited about is that I now have 200 pages worth of contemporaries to reach out to and get to realize what, what kind of work they're doing. And so I've been, you know, thumbing through it, especially with each, each story is two pages. So it's almost fun to just flip open, see, see what I read, take it in for a moment and then, and then move on from there but also at the same time be like wow who is this who's this author what are they working on and so I'm super excited to be part of this larger community and to have been included in this in this uh anthology yay (laughs) thanks for that tell me if you could go back to your younger self what would you tell yourself Mm. I would tell myself Hmm. you can do it. You can do it and do your best. Um, those are sort of the two, uh, the two almost mantras or meditations I've been sort of rewiring my brain to believe. Um, probably the last, I don't know, five years or so, I just decided to create a new inner monologue because when things feels so impossibly hard and you feel stuck and you don't know if and when anything will change or something seems just so daunting that inner voice that inner insecurity can just really have a field day so I just decided to change my narrative and so every now and again I'll hear the old things of like, you can't do it, or you're not that good or whatever. And I'll just say, no, don't listen. Don't listen to that. You can do it and do your best. And now I've noticed that I actually start hearing that reflexively. I I actually hear my brain start to say that to me. And I thought, wow, we really can rewire our brains absolutely we can mm-hmm. it's it's 
totally within our grasp. The reason why a lot of people don't believe in it is because they've been told not to believe in it. If you know, and that's that's why we have to rewire our own thinking. We, I think, we all go through. We're not all of us. There's some narcissistics out there, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of there. Are, you know, we we put ourselves down. We don't believe that we have the right to a vacation. We don't believe we have a right to a new car. We don't even have think we have a right to live in a decent neighborhood. But if we rewire our thinking, if we say yes, we can. It can change, but we first must believe it. And I believe that happens to us on an individual level and on a group level. Mm -hmm. If we can believe it, it will come true. It does work, but you have to first believe in it. Absolutely. Where can people find you out there in the wild, wild web? Uh, KimGriffin.net. That's K-I-M-G-R-Y-P-H-O-N.net. That's my website as an author. And I also self-published a uh, queer young adult science fiction novel a few years ago. It's called Shadow Flare. And that is available at shadowflare.net. And uh, I, I love that story. I would say Shadow Flare is the story I wished I could have read as a kid. Um, so that was that was very much how I felt as I was writing it. I felt like I was writing this world that I wished I could have seen and these characters I wished I could have seen. Um, so so that book is out there in the world as well. Do you have anything else in the works? Are you writing anything right now? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been working on some uh, short fiction, uh, no novels right now. Uh, so primarily short fiction has been what I'm working on and it's, I, I love writing longhand. It's my favorite way to write. So it ends up, um, just layers of transcription and you end up with multiple drafts before you even have anything, uh, that you could send in your computer, which is great as a writer. Um, it also means a lot of stuff doesn't actually leave my notebooks, um, which maybe is for the best sometimes and also gives you an opportunity to have something to revisit later. Um, so right now I'm working on uh, just uh, second and third drafts of a few different things. Kim, it has been an utter pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, well, that wraps up yet another fabulous episode of Storytelling with me, your host, Bissy B. If you want to be on the show, please do not hesitate to contact us at www.storytellingwithbissyb.com. You will find our website in all the glorious ways that you can contact us with your fabulous works. I look forward to our next guest coming soon. She is amazing, like all of our guests. And um, it's an absolute treat and honor to have her on the show. I believe, don't quote me, but she will be sending in an erotic piece for us to enjoy. And um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, something different, right? All right, so until next time, be good to yourself, be good to one another, and stay blessed.